everyone, today's episode is episode 12 of the History Hotline and today it will be about Remembrance Day and about the First World War. So I would like to take a moment to remember those who have passed away um, as a result of war and conflict and to honour those who have served. Right, so Remembrance Day is the day where we remember the end of the First World War and in 2020, the year we're in now, or if you're listening later on, it might be last year, the year before that, um, it marks the 102nd year that the war ended, the First World War that is, and it's often the time where we remember those who have died in, in both the First World War and the Second World War, although VE Day, which is on the 8th of May, that's when we tend to, to think more about World War Two. Um, so for this episode, I thought we would look at World War One, and obviously, you know, this this is a podcast that focuses on Black history, and I think the fact that so many Black names and Black lives have been disregarded and erased from the narrative surrounding World War One and service in Britain, especially, I think it's very important today that we think about those who have served from Africa, uh, from the West Indies, and the Caribbean, and just those kind of black and brown faces that would have been disregarded and erased after after the First World War. And even, you know, some of these uh, servicemen and women were racially abused during the war, after the war, to this day. Um, so I thought today would be a perfect time to, to remember those people especially. But I would like to say, you know, as much as we will speak about and, you know, the narratives are beginning to 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 shape up around the racism of the war office, the colonial office and the British government. I do like to remember the fact that, you know, every individual soldier, regardless of their, their race, their colour, their gender, they signed up um, to serve their country for a war that they, you know, obviously believed in and believed that they were fighting for good. And so sometimes, you know, we conflate the, the policies of the government and the powers that be with the individual civilians and servicemen and women that might have fought. And I don't want to do that today. Whilst obviously there were, you know, bad people as servicemen and women, there were racist people in the forces. Um, I think the majority of issue I take with war and racism and things of that nature come from come from above, they come from the government and they come from policies. And so we, we'll try not to conflate the issues um, in this episode, but forgive me if I do. So I think it's only right that we start with World War One. Why did it start? When did it happen? It started on the 28th of July, 1914, and it obviously continued until November the 11th, 1918. It was known, or is known, shall we say, as the war to end all wars, because it was probably the first, like, global... Well, it was definitely the first global war. It's called World War One. Um, it was the first global war um, that saw so many people taking part. I think it said the mobilisation of around 70 million military personnel. 60 million of them were probably European. Um, it's one of the deadliest conflicts in history. There were around 9 million combatant deaths, 13 million civilian deaths as well as genocides, um, you know, that occurred as a result of. And then, you know, since we're in a pandemic, why not throw in the Spanish flu that occurred in 1918, which caused millions of deaths worldwide. Um, it's estimated between 17 and 100 million. It's quite a, a wide span of numbers, um, but it was, you know, devastating. A, essentially a devastating time to be alive, really. If you survived it, then, you know, you, did, you must have done quite well because... The numbers are, are massive. So in June 1914, um, there's a Bosnian-Serbian 
Yugoslav nationalist, Gavrilo Princip. I don't know if anyone remembers doing this at school. I think it was on the national curriculum, World War One. But I can picture myself in the history lesson where I learned about this and we watched like a weird dramatization of it happening. It was so interesting to me. So I'm, I'm glad I get to relive it again. But anyway, he assassinated the Austro-Hungarian heir, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and that led to the July crisis. Um, as a result of this, uh, Austria-Hungary issued an ultimatum on Serbia. Serbia didn't really reply. The reply was a bit weak. Austria weren't satisfied. They declared war. And then, because of all the alliances um, around the world at the time, mostly in Europe, each kind of country had an alliance and then they had to back their team essentially so there was a lot of backing the war the war basically became global because of all the alliances so there was the triple entente which was france russia and britain and then the triple alliance which was germany austria hungary and italy and so all of these kind of powers at the time got involved in this war eventually the whole world was dragged in you know america get involved quite late they don't really do too much compared to what they do in the Second World War. Africa get involved, Asia get involved, the Caribbean. And when I say get involved, they volunteer troops, um, they send uh, financial aid, money. They allow, you know, different ships and naval naval, naval people, naval boats um, to, to use their waters to transport food, goods, um, arms, that kind of thing. It's a massive war on a global scale. Nothing like we'll ever see today, I pray. Um, but that's World War One, essentially. So obviously, you know, the war starts in Europe, but it does bring in a lot of black people. There were, I think Africa sent around 87,000 men to Europe and the West Indies sent about 15,600. They fought uh, on the front lines in different regiments, the Gold Coast Regiment, there was the King's African Rifles, the British West Indies Regiment and the Royal West African Frontier Force um, and they were just some of the few um, forces that would have gone to Europe and, and you know, taken part in active active battle and conflict and just to give you those numbers, that's 87,000 uh, men from Africa and 15,600 from the West Indies and that that's like, what, nearly 100,000 and I don't think I really ever heard about the fact that black people were involved in World War One. I've heard it more about World War Two, but World War One, that's a history that's definitely been erased from the narrative. I feel like I say this every week, it's history that's been erased from the narrative, but it just seems to be the case that a lot of black history has just been erased, even when it, you know, really should matter. The way that Britain remembers war, you know, it's a yearly thing, the, the fact that the regular scheduling services that usually happen at the Cenotaph couldn't happen this year because of the pandemic. And, you know, that being a, a quite a serious issue and a problem because obviously a lot of the veterans are extremely old um, and very vulnerable to the pandemic and to COVID-19. And so the fact that that wasn't happening this year, it is, it's a big thing. You know, poppies bring up a national debate every year. Poppies are remem are used to kind of commemorate um, those that have died. It's kind of the symbol of the British Legion. And the fact that you don't really get to learn that, you know, whilst this was clearly a global war, it is World War Two. We don't, sorry, World War One. We don't get to hear about the fact that, you know, there were people from Africa, Asia, the Caribbean that fought alongside these European men uh, in conflict. So for today's episode, I thought I would focus on three uh, black men 
that were all kind of around the same time fighting in Britain um, as part of different forces. And they all kind of have a claim to being the first or one of the first black officers. And this is quite the feat because there was a colour bar in the armed forces during the First World War and the Second World War. Um, And the fact that they were able to kind of, you know, challenge that and work their way up military rank regardless and fight for a country that they, you know, felt that they had a right and they did have a right to call themselves citizens of as, you know, the Caribbean islands that they were from were British colonies and that would make them British citizens. So the three we're talking about are David Lewis Clemston, George Bermond and Walter Tull. I think if you've heard of any of those it will probably be Walter Tull because he also was a footballer that played for Celtics and his story has been I'd say picked up more in mainstream media than the other two. So the first person we'll speak about is David Lewis Clemston and he was born in Jamaica and his grandfather was the son of an enslaved woman and a slave owner and so he would have been mixed race um, and then that went passed down until you get to David um, two generations later. He was born in Jamaica as I've said uh, in St Mary and he moved to England to study at Clifton College in Bristol and then he began to study law at Trinity College Cambridge in 1912. When war was declared in 1914, David Lewis Clemson was one of the first to volunteer. Uh, He was obviously a law student at the time, but he was eager to show that, you know, him as um, a citizen of a British colony such as Jamaica, he was also, you know, willing to fight for king and country um, and to die, you know, if if that was the case. And unfortunately, he did die. Um, He died two months before the end of the First World War, but we'll get on to to how that happened Um, and so he was on the front line for about eight months under constant bombardment big guns obviously you know I can only imagine the sounds of of being on a front line let alone the actual fact that you are literally in the face of death Um, he was badly traumatized um, by shell shock or what we now know as post-traumatic stress disorder He was a second lieutenant and he was evacuated to a military hospital in Malta following um, his time on the front line. He was declared physically fit but in need of psychiatric care so he was sent to Britain um, on a ship. Unfortunately he was torpedoed by a German submarine and sank off the coast of North Africa in 1917. So obviously you know it sank. Fortunately uh, he was rescued but diagnosed with neurotic depression and stress of service um, due to his kind of awful time on the front lines and he was taken to a psychiatric hospital in Scotland in June 1917. He was cared for there um, and in March 1918 he returned to his unit and he served on the Western Front. He was unfortunately killed near Peron on the Somme in September 1918 which was obviously less than two months before the end of the world war. I think with David Lewis Clemston the reason I've like brought him up as someone to speak about today is because he has quite an interesting story when it comes to his race because he was of I'd say to look at he he looks mixed race which he he was 
and he also was quite wealthy. His family sent him to Cambridge um, and were able to pay for that. And so obviously when you think of, you know, immigrants coming over from the Caribbean, you don't necessarily think of them being wealthy. The narrative of they came for a better life is always pushed. But this is in, you know, the pre-World War One era. And so I think we'll go into his history, his family history, just briefly, um, and then go into basically how the military tried to categorise him and kind of failed as well. Um, So essentially, his grandfather was the product, as we said, of um, an enslaved woman and a slave owner. Um, His grandfather then went on to own slaves himself uh, as a mixed-race man, and he became um, part of the kind of... I don't know the correct terminology but they were like an elite class of people in Jamaica and they were like a light-skinned black elite essentially um, which was common in Caribbean colonies um, that had slavery Um, and it kind of feeds into issues with colorism we see today in a sense that light-skinned people were given preferential treatment and they were wealthier um, due to you know the fact that they were a land-owning class in Jamaica at the time. So fast forward to 1914 when David Clemston is facing his interrogation in the military and he's asked, are you of pure European descent? Um, Because he was essentially light enough to pass as as someone that was. He answered no. And, you know, his, his grandfather obviously was mixed race, so he was technically not of pure European descent. Um, And so in the military, they kind of had this like, don't ask, don't tell practice when it came to race. Um, They adopt this policy for a lot of things in the future. Um, And so it meant things were conducted with like a little wink and a nod and oh, you know, if you don't disclose it, we won't ask. (laughs) Um, And so the officers would have probably rather he just said yes and said, look, I'm white. (laughs) Um, And nobody would have questioned it or queried it. But because there was a colour bar at the time, which said that people that were not of uh, European descent and the quote is Negroes or people of colour cannot become officers essentially and keep leadership roles in the military because they were for people of pure European descent and you know he was constantly categorised as different things throughout his career which was obviously quite brief in the military because he unfortunately passed away Um, but he was by doctor described as dusky Um, He didn't write black or white um, and Dusky was apparently the shade between light and dark. It's also interesting because Mary Seacole is described as Dusky, of Dusky complexion, um, which I just think is an awful term. Like if some, if you think Dusky to me, a Dusky sky, I'm thinking it's like grey, purple, maybe some blues. Like nobody is that colour. But, you know, the ways that people define different colours, races, ethnicities, changes all the time that's and that's the way he was identified you know david lewis clemston who i openly identified himself as not being of pure european descent um they turn a blind eye to him and they turn a blind eye to walter Tull and george Romand, who we'll speak about later even though i think their cases are slightly different but i think it's interesting that you know in times of conflict where they really need black and brown people They'll turn an eye, turn a blind eye to their racism and their their standard um, derogatory ways. And by them, I'm talking about the British government, of course, um, and the war office at the time. Um, In order to enlist men, they were able to do that. 
which is interesting because the colour bar persisted into World War Two in different ways. Um, there was a whole lobby against that. We'll get into that in another episode. Um, but we're going to move on now and talk about George Bermond um, and his experiences and how he defined himself um so George Bermond, again Jamaican born um, and said to be the first, the actual first black officer in Britain, um, he became a second lieutenant in the Royal Field Artillery on May 23rd 1915 um, and that was about four months before Clemson and then two years before Walter Tull who we'll get on to. So he came to Britain as a teenager, migrated in 1907 and the ship he was on made a stopover in New York. Most of the ships did, because obviously the journey was super far. And he was the child of a white English father and a black Jamaican mother. And so he was categorised by US immigrant immigration officials as African black. Um, which is very interesting because, you know, mixed race is now on the census. So he wouldn't have had to be identified as that today. Um, and so... Yeah, he was asked if he was of pure European descent, just like David Lewis Clemson, and he said yes. And his answer was accepted, that don't ask, don't tell little policy. He kind of went with it, and that was that about that. So, George Bermond, we don't know if he actually considered himself to be of pure European descent. Maybe he felt he was that way uh, as he grew up in a British colony he was educated probably by British people and spoke the Queen's English and had Empire Day and pledged allegiance to the King Um, and so you know he was also light-skinned enough to pass as being white there were obviously suspicions raised but nobody really asked because it was that don't ask don't tell policy Um, he I would I would assume you know, being as light-skinned as he was and knowing he was able to pass, he probably tried to do that. But also, I think when we think about um, people from other countries that are British colonies that are fighting in the time of war, they're fighting for king and country. They are fighting because they believe they are as British or as English as the next man from Britain. And so I think it's interesting to maybe look at and understand how people identified. I'd love to know if he if he did it to finesse or if he did it because that's the way he felt. Um, anyway, so May 1915, he becomes second lieutenant of the Royal Field Artillery. He ends up on the front lines in August 1916 um, and joined the 148 Brigadier's Ammunition Column in October 1916. He transferred to Y5 Trench Mortar Battery and attached to the 5th Division. And unfortunately, on Boxing Day uh, in 1916, he was killed by a shell. Um, and, you know, I would assume that his his death records, his records of death are why, maybe why we know who he is now and that kind of thing. And his obviously his application forms have been recovered um, and I've seen those and also his medal card those things would have been recovered and those are the ways that people have been able to kind of dig up these stories um his brother also served in the artillery harold leslie bermond um and he'd served on the western front and he also unfortunately passed away in belgium in 1917 um i think there are quite a lot of stories of of siblings that unfortunately pass away in in the first world war and in the second world war and you know it was to be his his mom his west indian mom living in Denmark Hill to to have the news that, you know, she'd now lost two sons um, to this war, which was not an uncommon narrative. And there is a lot of debate 
um, around war. Um, but honestly, to me, Wilfred Owens, his poems kind of speak about it a lot, but the futility of war, it it reigns really clear here because, you know, these, these two lives lost, so many other millions lost, um, and for what is, is the question we have to ask. So now we will move on to Walter Tull, who, as I said, is probably the most well-known name out of the three. He was a professional football player and a British army officer. He was the grandson of a enslaved man from Barbados. So that would have been his dad's dad. Um, and his dad was a carpenter from Barbados. And then his mom was born in Kent and from Kent. I think his dad migrated to Britain because Walter Tull was born in England. He was born in Folkestone in Kent. Um, unfortunately, when he was seven, his mom died of cancer. And then his father remarried and and then they had a daughter. Unfortunately, three months after that, his dad passed away. Um, his stepmother was unable to cope with the five children um, that she now had. And so she recommended that the two boys, Walter and his brother Edward, should be sent to an orphanage. And so from the age of nine, he was brought up at the Methodist Children's Home and Orphanage, which is now known as Action for Children in Bethnal Green. And he, his brother was adopted into another family and qualified as a dentist. And he was actually the first mixed race person to practice the profession in the UK but Walter went into football. So his career began when he was spotted playing for an amateur club, Clapton FC. He signed for Clapton in October 1908 and he reportedly never played in a losing side, which means he was literally undefeated, which we love to see. Um, by the end of the season, he'd won medals in FA Amateur Football, the London County Amateur Cup and the London Senior Cup. And he played alongside uh, Clyde Prunel and Charlie Rance for any footballers who love a bit of football history he went on to play for Tottenham Hotspurs for Northampton Town and for Rangers uh, FC um, and then the first world war broke out in August 1914 and he became the first Northampton Town player actually to enlist into the British Army in December of that year um, and he served in two football battalions of the Duke of Cambridge's own regiment the 17th and 23rd and also in the 5th battalion um, and he rose to the rank of Lance Sergeant and fought in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. He was then commissioned as a second lieutenant on the 30th of May 1917, becoming the first of, of mixed heritage to do so. Um, and we now know that that might not actually be the case because um, of george bermand and before that david lewis clemston um but this was a story that was kind of unearthed a little bit earlier than these and so he's kind of known for being the first um when it might not necessarily be the case there's a lot of that in history um because obviously the way history works is that the historians that look for these stories and narratives can only dig them up at, at a time where you know they know what to look for or they stumble across an archival paper or source or manuscript that allows them to unearth these narratives and so it was just a case that I think Walter Tools was picked up first and he is sometimes known as the first um, but it's not the case however you know in the grand scheme of it those these three men were all of the firsts to do so um, at a time where um, black and mixed race people were not allowed to fight 
and to raise to rise sorry to the rank of of lieutenant and so on and so forth so you know they've done well regardless of who did it first essentially is the point i'm trying to make um so tool and the 23rd battalion um returned to northern france on the 8th of march 1918 and unfortunately he was killed in action near the village of fravuel in the Pas de Calais. <laughs> Sorry, my French. I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing well. Any French-speaking people listening, I'm sorry for um, butchering your towns and cities. Um, but yeah, Walter Tull was unfortunately killed in action and his body was never recovered, actually, despite the efforts um, of of many people who tried to do so. Um, yep. So those are some of the the firsts um, in World War Two, um, in regards to to rising through the ranks. Obviously, this is not to say that they were the only people to to fight on behalf of the British in the First World War or the Second. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, any life lost is is sad and upsetting. And this kind of period of time where we remember the war i i feel like sometimes it can just kind of pass you by especially in a time like now where there's a pandemic happening the world seems to be in turmoil there's flooding in one part there's police brutality in another part there's genocide in the next part it's just absolutely insane right now um but to to think about these people that fought to sac- and sacrifice their lives and happily did so you know in order for our future to to look a bit brighter and to be better um because that's that's the reason why most people decided to to go on the front lines and fight and that is everything we have for today's episode i think in the next episode we're actually going to talk about the aftermath of the first world war because there were some riots in 1918 they were race riots and i think we interesting to look at that next week because we've kind of talked about those that gave their lives and those that served and we're honoring and remembering them today and this week um but i think we should you know flip into looking at some institutional racism as we love to do on this podcast um and unearth the kind of aftermath of the first world war and see what followed so i hope you enjoyed this episode i hope you learned a lot i hope you thought some some great things and i hope you tune in to another episode uh, next week or whenever you are listening thank you so much uh, for listening today please if you do listen on spotify give us a follow and if you listen on apple podcasts please give us a review and rate it um, it helps us out a lot um, and allows us to kind of get seen a little bit more by other people that might just be browsing podcasts more generally please follow us on instagram twitter uh, we're there we share a lot in the week um in between episodes that is and i hope you have a wonderful week and stay blessed thank you so much for tuning in goodbye